not only because we're fans of Sloop Brewing Company, but also because they've sponsored this show, I'm more than happy to read that Sloop Brewing Company operates out of Fishkill, New York, and are brewers of the one and only Juice Bomb, a Northeastern IPA, and other world-class ales and lagers. Visit their Instagram at Sloop Brewing Co. or find their website, sloopbrewing.com, in the show notes. That was such a professional-sounding ad. Crush that shit. It's methodical. Methodical. Crush that (laughs) shit. Caffeinated hippies and hipsters alike congregate at this coffee lover's paradise where you get a buzz just walking in thanks to friendly baristas promptly offering rock-solid brews with a warm smile, with fair prices, occasional live music, and a cozy vibe. There's no wonder it's always crowded with both customers and their pets. It sounds like a poem, right? He didn't sort he of. Did I, kind, I kind of dig it. I like it. <laughs> kind of dig it. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't write that at all. It was from Zagat, but it sounded like okay. it was a, a poem to some extent. It did sound very poetic. Yeah, it definitely did. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Mike Love in the building with us today from Coffee Labs. Thank Welcome. you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to come speak to us today about what? Coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> Literally, everyone thinks that they know things and they know nothing, right, Just? This is true. As I've stated before, I drink a lot of coffee. Unfortunately, it seems a lot of bad coffee. I went to go visit Coffee Labs in Terrytown, thought it, thinking I knew what I knew about coffee, and realized I know nothing about coffee. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, there's quite a bit to to know to learn. I learn every day. We opened eighteen years ago, and it's just been a constant learning process. And you opened in the town of Terrytown. Let's paint the picture of Terrytown itself, right? For those listening in Australia and all over the world where we Perfect. have people tuned in. Um, one guy in China. There's one, one guy, guy in China. China. There's awesome. one guy in Korea now, too. Oh, all yeah. right, good. I, I definitely know some people. There is a coffee labs in South Korea. Oh, wow. Crazy. Just to let you know. And as far as the one Chinese listener, Nihama, nice. um, I actually did some consulting in China. I uh, lived there for four months. Start helping a new roasting company start up. So basically, let's get back to Terrytown. Terrytown's right at the Tappan Zee Bridge. I call it the Tappan Zee because it's the Tappan Zee, a.k.a. the Mario Cuomo Bridge. No one's ever going it's to the call Tappan it Zee Bridge. Yeah, it's the TZ. So Terrytown's the first exit coming over from Rockland, last exit going to Rockland. Rivertown, it's kind of like that all-American Main Street you know, tree-lined, old street lamps. Just a great, cool, comforty vibe. You're not finding Walmarts. You're not finding, like, CVS-type spots, really. Most CVS is... Yeah, you gotta, we have a CVS. We have a Walgreens. But for the most part, it's pretty much all independent shops. So you also, though, are heavily into coffee here to the point where you said, I'm opening up a coffee spot coffee labs in 2003 here mm-hmm. years ago what was Terrytown though at that point oh my god um so Terrytown had gone through a pretty pretty big change as far as gm pulling out of sleepy hollow which really maintained sleepy hollow and Terrytown with the employment businesses once they pulled out kind of died it was antique shops it was the greek restaurant the tea shop and us yeah and that was it. So we really just decided this was the perfect place, and it was antique shops. And slowly, we kind of met. We kind of saw the curve on in Terrytown. And of all the river towns, it's really, without a doubt, the most lively town with the music hall. It's just great. 
as time goes on too, all these I want to say smaller towns wind up having these nice features that start being built upon. I mean, how long Mamaroneck was a source for food uh, in my day being here 15 years ago or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, when I was a kid, there wasn't much going on in, in Mamaroneck. I mean, I have really, there was really not a reason to go down there except for sales. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the movie theater at that time, they did have, but other than that, there wasn't really anything anything there. But now, yeah. now you're seeing a good a boom, and I think it's that similar to Terrytown. It's a vertical, it's a vertical yeah. village, so you just shoot that street right down to the water. Same way Terrytown, kind of everything goes right down to the water. Mm. So it's nice. So location-wise, I mean, you can be in a better spot now. But let's scale back to coffee real quick too, um, and not real quick. We should spend a lot of time <laughs> on coffee. I think. Uh, yeah. The you got into this business after working in restaurants. Yeah. What triggered that, though? Well, as you guys know, because all from this, that, that alternate universe of the restaurant world, um, it was basically I was burned out. I'd worked at a bunch of restaurants. There was a, my, the last opportunity was, you know, blah, blah, we're expanding. This great opportunity. We all know the drill. Um, and then we got a great write-up from the New York Times. And a month later, I was handed a severance check, and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not doing this for anyone anymore. And it was for coffee. If I was going to do coffee, it was going to be roasting coffee, just like grabbing stuff from a farm that you would cook with in a kitchen. Roasting coffee was just another culinary outlet for me and creative outlet. So you were, you were a chef before? Yep. Okay. Cool. But so. this, you <laughs> said you got your severance check, and then you were like, well, now I'm a coffee roaster. I'm just um, here. This is what we're doing now. Yeah, the my wife currently was my girlfriend, fiance, um, partner. We just kind of decided, let's go to a coffee show. Let's go to the Specialty Coffee Association of America show. See if this is really something that we could mold into and fit into and really do. And we were really fortunate. We found a bunch of service industry misfits, corporate misfits. It was like, oh, my God, this is like the restaurant world, but in a much more relaxed environment. <laughs> Which is ironic. Yeah. So after we went to our first coffee show, we solidified the idea. And in 2000, we started searching for a place. We found Terrytown's location and just kind of moved on. Did you know anything really about coffee before you went to that show, though? Or were you doing research for some time period? Or was this did a, a little whim? Did a little bit of research. Um, I lived in Europe for a while. Um, after we decided we were going to do it, I was fortunate enough to get an internship at a coffee roasting company out in Queens, which was Dallas Brothers Coffee. Been out there since, like, the 1920s. Spoke to David Dallas, the owner of the company, and... He basically, I did like six months apprenticeship rolling, roasting with their small specialty batch roaster. Learned a lot, realized it was time, temperature, airflow. I'm like, okay, this is this is totally doable. It's just cooking another another farm product, another consumable. So I was like, yeah, this is great. And I don't know if the deal with like, individual plates and expedited none of that 
so out the gate too did you after you left the apprenticeship at that point you said all right it's time that i do my own thing yep we had already been in the process of getting the location the lease oh so it wasn't even out of the backyard for a little bit or the garage before Mm -hmm. it was about i was out of the restaurant business probably a year and a half and then boom we did coffee labs oh wow so the idea of the name from Coffee Labs was? So in the morning, uh, at the time, my wife was working at Dragonfly Cafe in Pleasantville. She was working in a coffee shop. I did some recon work in that time being at the Green Monster. Um, and that's... I don't know. It's the research that she was doing... Everything just kind of leaned into this was the perfect match. And then we left one day. I went to the shop, came back to the house, left a large coffee next to the bed. We had three Labradors, two blacks, and a chocolate. Denali was a chocolate lab, and she had a really soft mouth, and she basically just popped the lid and drank the cup. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out we called the vet because she had a history of eating and doing stuff. Said five gallons in one sitting for a 65-pound dog. Okay. No toxicological. If we do this, let's call coffee labs. Play on words. We roast coffee. Our dogs drink coffee, hence the dog and the coffee. Coffee labs. That's funny. So the dog was okay, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the dog can eat or drink five gallons of coffee in one sitting before they have any, like, negative. Yeah. That's good to know. For a 65-pound dog. Yeah, yeah. Five gallons is a lot of coffee. Yeah, I mean, I can't drink five (laughs) gallons of coffee. (laughs) So the, uh, all right, so now you've got your name, you've got your lease being built up at this point. And uh, the last piece of the puzzle, though, is like you've got to source this coffee. Where where are you just wholesale buying it from these events? So at the time, I had worked out a deal to buy coffee from Dallas because they sold green coffee as well. So with that, And going to my next show, I kind of met more people and had been roasting. And I had met a couple importers and just started getting access to better, more coffees, better coffees. Um, From that point, it was really 2005, I took my first trip to Mexico. I had met a processor. He invited me down. He was working with a sustainable, really sustainable program down there as far as tracking coffee. Two, two shots right there. Two yes. shots. <laughs> there's, a, there's a game here. Okay. Sustainability is mentioned. you got to take a shot. Okay, uh, perfect. <laughs> in, in this case, it might be espresso. Okay, fair enough. So we head down to Mexico. We bought our first coffees and continued to meet people. I was invited to be a judge, a tasting judge, cupping. That's basically like a wine tasting, sniffing, slurping, spitting. What do you What do you look for in in this? Yes, I. That's probably a whole hour talking itself. Um. So basically, what primarily what you're really looking for when I purchase coffee is cleanliness, sweetness, balance, aromatics, mouthfeel. Though those are really the key thing is the sweetness and the acidity and cleanliness that really is what i'm looking for dirty cups are going to be dirty cups so you want something to be really clean and balanced when you drink it so that's kind of what i look for 
we go on the same scale as like one spectator and it is uh, I need a shot for that one I really don't like to associate coffee with wine which a lot of people do coffee's a final product wine gets better it doesn't die but there is a scale that we go on 85 and above to 100 is considered specialty coffee Anything below an 85 is considered commercial coffee. And then it gets even lower than that. What what grade do restaurants typically put in? Commercial pre-ground. Is there a number that you wind up seeing that at, or, though, or no? Um, most coffee you find in restaurant situations is really just commodity coffee. Okay, I was waiting for you to be like, yeah, they put 12. They put a 12 in there. <laughs> uh, which you know, I know, we all know that typically it's like the last thing looked upon in a restaurant is putting a quality cup of coffee on the table at the end of the day. And it's honestly, it's always been offensive. Even before I was in coffee. You know, you get your hand chewed off for not putting the garnish on the, the dinner plate, but then you oh bring out God. this shit coffee to somebody at the end and of the And that's fine. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. The... People that bring out espressos that have none of the beautiful, delicious cremas that are on top, and it, they put in a, a lemon peel on the side. That espresso romano is what some places call it. It's a farce, people. It's a farce. They don't do it in Italy. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you a quick little history on that one. When first-gen Italian-Americans came over, there were no espresso machines. They were still drinking cowboy coffee and brewing it super strong, but it was a really muddy cup. The lemon brought that acidity that they were used to from quickly extracted espresso. That's how it's an Italian-American thing that ultimately faded off. So it was designed to be a mask. Yeah, for okay. really shitty coffee. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm sure in your industry too, though. There's a lot of different ways that people can mask terrible coffee. No. Yeah. Is, yeah. There's there's lots of ways. A lot of it is French roasting coffee, which is really dark roasted coffee. You'll generally see French roast. Okay. That, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or on the shelves. Why? Because it's just dark. People grew up with kind of drinking murky, dark, funky coffee. So that appeals to an older generation. Younger generation, I'm almost 50. So my generation is kind of likes a little bit different of a cup. And people even younger than me that are coming into the coffee industry, it's a very different. They want almost like tea-like, really light, sweet, bright coffees. That murky, muddy cup just doesn't do it. Do you... and? Uh, not to make a reference to Blockbuster Netflix, do you pay attention to these trends, though, that are happening with the youth, considering that, you know, these are your clientele at the end of the day that start coming in and hanging out at your coffee location and sitting and doing, you know, whatever urban hipsters do, right? Yeah. How many times do you raise an eyebrow and go, what are they doing now? Quite a few. It's just they have, they consider them second waivers, when I that was the coffee phase before I came in. I came in during what they call the third third wave of coffee, which focused on different extraction methods, roasting lighter, just really just all over the place experimentation and playing. 
and refining the art of extracting coffee. Now it's coming into the fourth wave, the next generation of coffee, which is, I don't know. I just read an article the other day, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. There's a certain amount of pressure you're supposed to extract espresso at, which is nine atmospheres, and you're supposed to use a certain weight depending on what size basket, so on and so forth. There's a crazy science behind all of it. And now people are using lower pressures to extract coffee, and it's not. It's pulling. It's obviously it's extracting coffee at a different water level. So not such high pressure. When you put 19 grams in a 21-gram basket, it roughly leaves three, millimeter, three to four millimeters gap. Once that water hits that compressed puck, it expands. The coarser, tighter the grinds are, depends on water flow. Coarser, of course, is going to pass through. Finer, it's going to pass through much slower, give you a big, rounder flavor. It's almost like people are trying to replicate an Americano, which is water and espresso, right out of the espresso machine. Once again, everybody plays. We're, we were into pour-overs for the longest time. Now we're slowly fading them out. Inconsistency, human error. Just, Justin told me something interesting. Yeah, yeah I was actually explaining to him when we, when we visited um, Jeffrey... Jefferson. Jefferson. I, Jefferson did a. He's the man. He's, he knows his stuff. Yeah. He knows, I mean, he's he been with us. I don't know how many people you guys know who have held jobs in the service industry. He's been with us 13 years. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, literally a rock star. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. He's amazing. Because besides him, I don't think we had an employee that was there that long. Dan, Dan's kind of catching up. Dan's been. Dan's catching Yeah, uh, Yeah, you're right. He's Dan's getting up there. Up, yeah. What were you? You were like 10 years, right? I think I was with you guys. For 11, 11 years. That's awesome. Yeah, he yeah. was 11 before he ended up going. And Dan's like. Dan's got to be there by now. Yeah, he's got to be 9 or 10 coming yeah. right up. But that's it. Other than that, <laughs> pretty good. We were talking about, I vis- we visited um, Coffee Labs, and he did a pour over for us, which I actually have never seen before. And he had it all hooked up with the scale, and then it had the a iPad. Little, yep. And I'm watching, like, this is a whole science behind this cup. So you got to explain what a pour over is, because he kind of explained it, but probably <laughs> okay. better. So basically, it's a funnel, a okay. cone that sits on top of a glass server range. A filter goes in it. Originally, they were called Melitas. Then the Hario came out with one slightly different design. Melitas are flat on the bottom. Harios are completely conical. There's a bunch of different designs. Kalitas, so on and so forth. But it's basically a filter. You put the coffee in the filter. And you slowly pour coffee via basically a, a pour-over kettle. It has a very specific style spout that allows it to flow out at a nice, even flow rate. And it's basically three minutes. You slowly you pour it over. You get all the coffee grinds wet like it would be in a normal machine. And then you slowly start passing water over it in a circular motion. I... Uh... You said three minutes. I was at a place. We won't mention the name of the place yet. However, the coffee machine was down, and I noticed that the coffee wasn't ready as it usually is for me by the time I arrive. 
And I'm looking in the back, and I see the kid just moving his arm around, just pouring water <laughs> over grinds manually. And I was kind of just looking at him like, what's happening here? Where, where's my coffee? I wound up sitting there for about seven minutes or so mm-hmm. while he was doing this. I was appreciative of the cup because I was thirsty and it was the morning, and that's how I start my day. Um, but that is exactly what he was doing then, correct? Yep. Okay. And the sole reason of doing such would be? Different methods of extraction, extract coffees in different ways. So I could brew you a, an espresso with the same coffee, then brew it on the batch brewer, like a normal drip coffee, then move it over to Kyoto, the Japanese ice drippers, pour over, siphon. They're all going to slightly extract different ways just because of the methodologies. And that extracting differently ultimately results in... Different flavors in the cup. Okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. So when he was doing that pour over, though, he was following what looked like a graph. Yeah, a, uh, a flow chart. And what, what was he trying to hit there? So you're basically all those coffees that you saw on the iPad and with the scale, the scale is connected Bluetooth. So as it's all teared out, it starts, it's programmed recipes. So whatever he's using, he could pull up, it'll show the baseline for what we've designated as that brew profile. And then he'll try to pour along that rate. The reason why we're getting rid of it, everyone pours different. There's, they're just inconsistent. Mm-hmm. That's all I could say about them. We've just come to the realization that they are inconsistent. Our siphon program, on the other hand, that's a very different, we have a very systematic way of that. There's no hu- real human error to that. What's si- what is siphon? It's basically a vacuum pot where the water is in the bottom glass vessel, the coffee's up top, heats the water into the top vessel, and then it goes back down when you take it off the heat. So it goes through a filter. All the coffee grinds stay up, and your vacuum pot of coffee comes to the bottom. There's so much crazy nerd technology yeah. out there when it, it comes to actually intense. doing things. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I was doing frozen lattes with liquid nitrogen a couple months ago. That was, people love that. What's something like that go for? That was, I just, I come in randomly and do, I competed for eight years as a barista, so like flair competition, but for coffee. Awesome. That was called the ultimate barista. Ultimate barista challenge, yeah. I saw, I saw, again, when we visited, I saw that. I I didn't even, wasn't aware there was this whole world out there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've competed Russia, China. Wow. You think it's going to be an Olympic, uh, Olympic sport pretty soon? Should oh, be surely interesting. I mean, at least, bar, you know, at least, you know too, for yeah. for energizing. I guess. <laughs> what everyone. are they? What's the what's the competition like? What are they? What are um, they so the ultimate barista challenge was basically set up as a culinary competition. After a couple of them, they designated ultimate baristas that had won consistently. So you get to go. You and I go on stage. You have one station. I have another. It's a latte art category. You've seen Jefferson do it. Frozen drink, espresso, and specialty creative drink, your signature drink. So basically, we would go at it in whatever challenge you and I would go. Whoever wins that challenge, it's judged right then and there. Your hand's raised, you move on. Then you get to basically pick like Iron Chef who you want to challenge. So, but do you do you get to bring the product as well, or they give yeah, you? Yeah, you bring okay, your you bring own, own stuff. Okay. Yep. 
That's that's pretty cool. Do you have some of these trophies on the wall somewhere? Or? Oh, I have all of them. <laughs> Love it. All of them. Yeah. What were some of your winning drinks? You win trophies, you hang them up. Uh, the edible latte was a reverse spherification on a chocolate molded tasting spoon with a hazelnut brittle. <laughs> Say that again, but twice as slow so okay. I can picture this. <laughs> okay, so we basically, ima- I took a latte mixture. Then, which is just I used heavy cream for okay. this one, espresso. Just try and dumb it down as sugar. much as possible. So I took all this basically cold latte, put it in a bowl, mixed it, and did a reverse spherification. So if you guys are into like molecular gastronomy, you know, it basically turned out like an egg yolk. So it had a thin, thin shell, little tasting spoons, you get it, you know, parties. It's like almost. Chinese soup spoons, just did a bunch of chocolate molds, put them in there, sprinkled it, served it. I try to do things like I did when I was a chef. Anyone could just put out a dish. I cook steak, you cook steak. Everyone cooks steak, put it on a plate. But how do you, how do you reinvent that? How do you give someone that same experience but not in a cup. Yeah. So that was, you know, Adria Ferran, Wiley Dufresne. You know, I, there's a lot of chefs that I kind of look up to and I consider like, okay, they're doing this with food. I still have this strong culinary background. How do I do that here? So spoon work. Yeah. Spoon work. Spoon work. That's nice. Way to tie it in. Um, <laughs> And a spread, one of the drinks that Ferdinand Metz, I won with, Ferdinand was a judge from the French Culinary Institute, and it was an espresso pisco sour. I'd just gotten back from Peru. The horrifying point of, like, an espresso pisco sour is you have to add lime juice to espresso. <laughs> so now you're playing with really two volatile citrus acidic things. And it won. It was a great drink. I've repeated it in Russia. Um, tiramisu frappe. That sounds amazing. So basically served in a shake glass with lady fingers. And I basically made my own ricotta filling and did the whole blended thing with vanilla gelato. Basically, it's just reinventing things that you might not normally think of as a coffee. It, it sounds like being a chef has really resulted in you being able to have a leg up on competition as far as oh, yeah. presentation on things. 100%. No? Well, also presentation, but also when it comes to, we could all roast coffee. I could show you how to roast coffee and get you on a on a pace and just repetitive of doing it. When it comes to blending coffee, that's a whole nother ball game. It's like putting things together, and that's where my culinary background comes our blends that we have for our coffees, it's hard to blend coffees because you're dealing with different roast times. Are you pre-blending? Are you post-blending? Are you two different roast and then post-blending them? You have to figure out how all these coffees individually work with each other or how they're going to react in the coffee roaster together. So blending is where I think the culinary background 
wine and just palate really, really come into play. When I do infusions uh, with various spirits, I have a, I have a log journal. So with that, with that said, <laughs> okay. with that said, with my log journal, I record how long I've let something sit in any spirit. And Absolutely. I'm going through a, a tasting period here too. And I say, all right, so next time I know that I need to turn this back or I need to turn that down. So when you're doing something with a blend where you're saying that the end result is completely different every time, oh, yeah. then you are literally kind of keeping some type of log then. Oh, everything. So there's fully automated coffee roasters. We actually have a computer, a profile system on our roaster, thermal couplings that go to it. So basically it's almost like the pour over system, but much easier to control. So everything's designated. We can pull up the profile and then they'll roast it manually by following the curve. Okay. So everything's tracked. I could look back at, Different days, if there were any variations with airflow, if it was a humid day, it records everything in the environment, That's inside cool. and out. So with that, we have a super detailed record. And then couple that with all our cupping notes and tasting notes, we have journals going back years. So we can compare coffees from year to year to year. There's a lot of the 90% of the farms I deal with I fly to. I'm three months on the ground every year. So it's not like I'm just buying coffee from a warehouse. We're buying coffee direct off the farms and signing contracts with farmers in country. That was that was one of the questions I had because when you have a pretty extensive menu at, at the shop. Yep. You know, flavor profile going all over the place from what you're normally, what people would be used to everywhere yeah, to normal, like some yeah. crazy... Like um, we have some coffee from El Salvador. It's twelve ounces from Ada Botley's farm, sixty three dollars. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> and some really good profiles too. Like I don't remember the one that we tried, but it was a, it had like a sour, a sour flavor to it, which I lo- I like sour beers. Right. So like I had that one. I was this is good for me. But we didn't choose that to serve at the restaurant because I don't think everybody would have. And enjoyed I'm the it. same way. When I buy coffees, I can't. I've had a couple of years that I've bought long and I've bought stuff that was. To my taste. Right. Mm. Yeah, you, you have to I gotta keep in mind I'm not buying for me. And my my question was gonna be when you go out and you source the coffee fruit, which I also learned was a fruit. Yeah, it's a cherry it was a varietal. Cafeus arabicus is a cherry varietal. And uh so you just answered that though. So you actually <laughs> go to the farms yeah. and like actually see what's going on. Yeah, we just... leave uh we just booked our trip. We leave March fifth to go to Hyderabad. In India. Wow. So, what, so you're all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So you have some Colombian. You have some. This will make 38 countries. Wow. How do you determine what farms you're going to use for your beans? Like, are you looking for, I know you're looking for obviously what's in season, what's fresh. But as far as like the taste and the flavor, how do you determine where it's going to come from? So I was fortunate enough to get involved early in a event that was done by Cup of Excellence program which basically goes in the countries, goes through a national cupping program. They eliminate coffees. Then they bring in international judges to cup with the nationals, regrade these coffees, bring them down to the top 20, and then put them up for full full buy auctions. Not one bag, but you have to buy all of it. So when you're, you're talking about we're going through 80 different cups of coffee, 
110 different cups of coffee at times in different countries. I have to cup as a job to do my best to get the best coffees through where we're all collab, all calibrated as a group. But there's a lot of coffees that you'll find and I'll find that will never make it to the top 20 just because there's 18 other cup judges. Highest and lowest score gets dropped out. Everything gets averaged. So I started, and I will give him credit for this. I kind of followed, you all guys know, Stumptown. So when Dwayne owned Stumptown, he was going and judging COEs, then finding these offshoots of great coffees that never make it all the way. You cut a deal with those farmers, next thing you know, you now have your own booklet and resource files of farms, farmers that you've met, connections, and it just kind of goes like that. Now I go down, I know a lot of the farmers, kids, wives, families, moms, dads. I stay at the farms. And that's kind of how it really plays out. So I do sign contracts with, with farmers just because of logistics, but... If I go down and I find your coffee amazing, we could work out a good price. I'm going to shake your hand and we're rolling for five years. And we could flow up and down the minute one person gets greedy or two and it doesn't work out, which happens. We part ways. A lot of the farmers I've been with have been over five years, six years. How how many? I mean, you're the Frank Lucas of coffee sourcing. Sounds right? like, like it. Cut out the middleman <laughs> and go straight to the source. But with that said, how many other guys out there are just maybe buying something wholesale? They're not really sourcing these farms like this. A lot. Is that the majority, you think, of people? or? Um, there's like the top 10% of coffee houses out there that are at the same level of buying. Okay. Some A lot of people don't have access. It's a, at any given point. I could have, you know, $120,000 tied up in inventory, plus paying three cents a pound storage fees because I can't store this coffee, all of it. And having access and to be able to leave your store, travel, and get involved in things like that, it's you really have to say, this is what I'm going to do. Because it's easy to call you up at a at an import warehouse out in Jersey or Staten Island, say, "Hey, send me your offer sheet," just like you get from a fish vendor, or produce vendor, or fossil farm. Any of those things, you go through and you pick out coffees. You talk to the seller, you know, at the importer, what are you liking? Blah 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 blah. And you have the relationship, and you get to know, and they get to know what you like, and you buy commodity coffees or specialty or just below specialty. Some of the importers do have high end, but it doesn't move as quick. So at, at what point in your location were you able to kind of get out of being on site and start, I guess, purveying your own coffee? Yeah. Right? Um, like I said, 2005, I made my first trip to Mexico. 2006, I was in Peru um, and just kind of kept going from there. And then the... Cup of Excellence programs went through Nicaragua, um, Brazil, Salvador, Costa Rica, 
Panama had a Best of Panama, which was almost like a cup of excellence. And that's just kind of how it got going. And I figured if I'm going to, if I was going to be a chef, I'm going to come to your farm, whether it be produce, livestock, and I'm going to source it direct. It's the same thing with coffee. It's just not local. It's local in my mind. This doesn't grow here, and I'm dealing with local people in small local communities. I was, and I was today years old, right? When we found out that coffee actually is a fruit. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a ton of people listening to this too that are like, "What are you talking about? It's a fruit." This thing almost looks. You said it before, like a cherry or a. a it looks exactly like a cherry. So how do you does it taste like a cherry too before it's all roasted off? Yeah, when you have the skin, the mucilage, everything, and all the sugars have really built up from sitting and ripening and getting its full maturation on a tree, a shrub. Actually, they're not trees; they're shrubs. Um, yeah, they're really sweet. Can be tart. Some could be, you know, kind of like a sweet tart sour. So is the bean, though, inside of that fruit? Yes. It is. So if you look at a coffee bean and see a coffee bean, there's always one round side and one flat side. Yes. Boom. They come in twins. They grow flat side to flat side. There's two seeds in each cherry. Now, going to the weird one, pea berries. Pea berries are generally really tiny beans, and there's only one. So basically there's a weak one and a dominant one and the dominant one survives and it only grows but so big. Very different flavor profile, really sweet, bright cocoa, pineapple notes to it depending on which country it's from. So a lot of the agriculture around the coffee and how it's being pollinated also has an effect. So how do they get the bean out of the fruit piece though? Dispolvador. So it's basically a big pulper. Okay. So you can adjust the grades to the screen size, and that determines how much skin and mucilage you would then take off the off the cherry to only then put it in a fermentation tank, ferment it 18, 12 hours, depending on what you may be looking for in that coffee or you if you have a relationship with the farmer to talk about different processing. <laughs> and uh, then it would go into a drying bed. It would get dried, stripped, down to the parchment, and then it would sit until it's ready to ship in its pergamino, oro. So there's like a silver skin around it. Once it's out of that, then it needs to be roasted. What generally happens to the rest of the berry uh, since you're just harvesting the seed on the inside? So... Different processes. That one, a lot of that pulp and mucilage goes back into compost. So a lot of that, everything kind of stays within the farms generally. Um, then you have different processes. Naturals, which are ripe cherries just picked and put on raised screen beds and then moved around every few days until they just dry up all those sugars and Volatile acids get soaked into. You probably end up with a much more robust flavor with that one. Yeah, really fruity, bright acidities. Um, Then you have honey process. So now you're going to strip X amount of skin and mucilage 
and then you're going to put it on a raised bed with all that kind of meat and funk around it, and that's going to dry. And that's going to get caramelized and sticky and clumpy and, like, really sugary. That's a honey process, and there's, there's yellow honeys, orange honeys, red honeys, black honeys. It's just a matter of how long they're basically sitting on the patios or on the raised beds in the on the patios. There is so many different ways to process coffee. Um, a couple years ago, Brian Oriana and myself started doing a anaerobic processing. So we're basically filling with cold water, sealing it airtight, and fermenting in a cold space in his bodegas, and then fermenting it that way, which has caused an amazingly super clean, very clean finish, good mouthfeel, but very, very, I mean, crazy balance. As, as we, I think, become a little bit more environmentally conscious or just conscious in general of bigger businesses that are coming around and just gaining so much power uh, just in their own tumbleweed effects. Mm -hmm. I think over the last few years, I've noticed a lot more coffee shops pop up. Um, and, and I think you guys can agree with me that they're popping up in every little town there is. And not only that, but they're crowded. They're filled with people. Yeah. Conveniently, and I'll say this, I put my order into Starbucks from my phone, right? Yeah. Um, with with doing that, it's ready for me. I pick it up and I just keep driving off yep. uh, because parking's hard to find at the end of the day. Everywhere. So and we're all in small. This is a small area. Parking's a, a headache everywhere. Sure. And now this is being that people are a little bit more conscious. If they can, a lot of times they will go to a more privately owned place and support the local community and whatnot. What's the name of the place right here in Mamaronic that opened Ro up? Roasters. Roasters. Mamaronic Coffee Roasters. There we yep. go. Uh, Roost just opened up by me in Stanford. Nice little coffee house in the corner. There's also uh, another one through town, too, that's pretty well known. But these places are full every time I drive by. Yep. Uh, I know your place also gets pretty packed up, too. Yeah. This just supports a different environment. It's a gathering place. It's a communal space. Like, the big joke is we manage it. Terrytown. It's really Terrytown shop. Um, we're three-star green restaurant certified. We try to do as much, and we don't market it because it's not something, I don't know. Being sustainable, I don't feel like I want to... Things could almost be greenwashed. So when people ask us, I'll be more than happy. We don't have any plasticware in the house. Straws are corn-based. All our silverware is actual cutlery. Clamshells, recycled cardboard. We're three-star green restaurant certified. We compost all our grind, all our spent grinds with stone barns. We do as much as humanly possible that we could afford to do. This is, if you can't afford to do it, then it's not sustainable. We recycle the bags. People use them for planting, for flower beds, make handbags with them. It's just so you're not you're not pushing that down everybody's 
throat though when you walk in like if you walk in you're not like oh we do this and we do that and we do that no, there's like little so, things so it's just out of genuinely wanting to be that way yeah not not just to be a selling it's point how we don't i know this is gonna that, sound crazy you know? man we don't ever we don't have paper napkins in our house we don't have paper towels in our house i didn't even notice that <laughs> i was sitting there i didn't it made yeah. no difference to me like in our home we don't have any top plastic Tupperware. Everything's glass. I have a microwave. This just kind of it came with our new house. Um, but our lifestyle at home, we just translated everything we liked and believed in into coffee labs, and hoped everyone kind of. We didn't have a yeah. We didn't have a design team right. or anything like that. We just put us into it and hope everyone kind of jumped on board and they did so you we were just going through all the different flavor profiles <clears throat> from different beans and everything you have a, a wholesale operation as well yep. outside of the shop right oh yeah how important do you think it is for restaurants to realize that they can match the coffee flavor with what they're serving or you know that kind of thing do you think it's important or should you know I, so i think when we first we had a brief discussion about when you go to a restaurant, it's important. You make so much money off that cup of coffee. And honestly, I don't know if any of you people out there, the restaurant owners, management, those K-cups, do the math on them. <laughs> do the math on those things. I, I was a victim of K-cupping for a while, and then I purchased my own cup that you would put into the machine yep. so I could put my own grinds in there. Yeah. And then I would use a coffee grinder so I could get a better cup. cup of coffee. Those K-cups are disgusting. Yeah. Not only that, that machine itself, I felt like, kept on giving me shittier and shittier cups of coffee as time went on. Maybe that's because I wasn't maintenance appropriate. It's to hard it to keep those things clean and really... And most people... You have the thing for speed and efficiency. You're using it because you're in a rush. You're not going to take all that precious spare time you have and clean the damn thing. That's really what it boils down to. I want an amazing experience from the hostess to the apps to the drinks to my dessert. And with my dessert, I want a good cup of coffee and I was victim of that, and, you know, I was part of that when I was in the restaurant business. You look at ground coffee. Once you grind coffee, you're talking about six hours before it really starts to degrade. You could flush it with nitrogen. You could put it in the bag with a one-way valve. It's ground. Think about you have a whole coffee bean. It's only being exposed as a whole coffee bean. You grind it into an auto-drip setting, on a 15 screen size, 15, 16 screen size coffee bean, you're looking at roughly, I don't know, just under 2,000 particulate. So now you have all this air and atmosphere around all these little bits of coffee only to give off aromatics and everything else. Once you crack an Anastar, you really smell it, but then it starts to go. Same thing with coffee. Once you grind it, you're losing aromatics, flavor, everything. So what, what about this stuff that's already ground, comes out of the bag that most people order in restaurants? I have my coffee machine at my bar in Stanford right next to the service well. Mm -hmm. They brew the batches of coffee and just it always just smells like it's just burnt at the end of the day. 
is that something we're doing incorrectly in making that coffee? Or is it just because the grinds are that terrible? Because the coffee is that terrible, because most likely they bought commodity coffee. So you're looking at the commodity market right now really sucks for coffee. What does one of those bags cost, do you think? 27 cents, 28 cents. Okay. So as long as you brew a batch, you sell one coffee, you've already made some profit on it to yeah. some extent. You, it's a huge profit margin on coffee. What, what is that profit margin? And you guys, I don't know. I, we mean, were, we were I could say in a restaurant, you're probably looking at like $3 profit margin once you take out the labor. You know, it's a huge. Yeah. Same with desserts, man. Well, we, we were you hire an amazing pastry chef, but you serve it with shit coffee. Why? No, we were victim to the same thing, which is why we came and gave you a visit. Plus, I stopped, you know, I started drinking the coffee more at the restaurant um, and realized it was just not that good. <laughs> and uh, and we think it's very important the end of the, your end of your experience at the restaurant is just as important as everything else. If not the most important thing, because it's usually the last thing that you remember. It's the send-off. Yeah. You know? the, yeah. So if we're, if we're sitting here and, like, can I get a cup of coffee? And it's been sitting in the pot for five or six hours yeah. or whatever is happening and then you give it and that's literally the last thing that they had at the store was not as good as and everything else and then they leave and it's kind of unsatisfied we have 40 minute timers on all our coffees if it lasts that long decaf usually lasts up to about the timer once it slows down around 10 but we've just none of the coffees really hit those timers we just rip through them you're talking about coffees in multiples. How many coffees? Or Three coffee coffees a types. day we brew. So we brew a decaf and then a number one and number two, and that's usually dealer's choice when they come in in the morning. How and many? It's, a, it's the closer, you know, for us, right? The coffee. Totally. So that's why, we're, that's why we're getting into it. And the closer increases your check averages and everybody's happy and you get all that stuff. It's just you like know, baseball. If you could if you had push a black... this out and say and just give someone – a little notation and say, hey, this is from this coffee roaster, wherever you may be from. You know, this is from Coffee Labs, and this is from this particular farm. If the, if the server upsells that about you have a farmer direct, just like you know where you got the, the beef is coming from or anything else that you ate during that meal, it's a story to tell. True. And with stories, people get emotional, people feel better, and people want to pay more because they associate that dollar with a face. And on your website, too, I did note that you do have some of the faces of the guys yeah. that you, de- you deal with. Like oh, right 100%. Uh, so you know that it's being sourced from there, too. And what, what we're saying, too, here in the restaurant is when I, I'm, when I was a kid and I would work in restaurants, I didn't know too much about coffee. I, I would I would walk over to a table and I'd say, I'll be right back. I'm brewing your fresh batch of coffee. <laughs> like that's sounding appetizing and great. But at the end of the day, it wasn't a good cup at all. And I no. could tell it was not a good cup looking back at it now. And just I remember that stench in my nose of, of what that coffee sound uh, smells like. How hard is it for a company to get an account with you or anybody else for that matter that actually has better coffee? Um, It's. Actually not. You really. Justin said you put him through hoops when he came over to Coffee Labs. <laughs> he had to come to get take a, a test full, when yeah. he was done. <laughs> education. I didn't say anything. Listen, that. I just, it, it's Erroneous. a matter of, I was real aggressive with accounts before, and now it's come to, we have a really, we do have a good wholesale account. We have 
accounts and we have a great online. Just a matter of emailing. Come in and sit with us. I don't like to send samples because you don't know how they're. Uh, I don't know how they're going to brew it. Right. And I could tell you how to brew it all day long, and you're still not going to brew it the way I tell you to do it. So come in, you sit down, we chat, we have some coffees, taste some stuff, talk about what you like to maybe drink and eat, or what you serve at the restaurant. And kind of balance that out and pair it up. What do you like? What do your customers feel they want? And then let's run a couple test batches through. See what the customers really react to. When someone starts buying your coffee, do you recommend that they get any special equipment to brew it? Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't want to be, this is where, I don't want to be a snob, but there's, there's equipment that people have. If you still have a glass pot coffee brewer when I come to your space, if you don't, if you're not willing to move into the direction of better coffee, not just by buying better coffee, but producing it, it's not going to work. So it's what just did, not. What did you have to buy? Well, he gave me, Doug gave me a whole list of like, okay, we well need to buy the grinder. We didn't have a grinder, yep. so obviously we're going to start grinding now. We're going to do a grinder. Awesome. They actually looked at the – we have a, a bun, like, pour-over. Yeah, the bun said, air pot pour-overs. Yeah, so we had that already, so we don't have to buy that. But we decided after Mike and I, my partner Mike, and we met with Doug and Jefferson, decided then that the best way for us to serve the coffee was actually do little French presses at the okay. table. So we, we can do that. So we order all that stuff. So we got all the French presses – and the grinder and all this stuff should be coming in like Monday or Tuesday, and then we're going to switch over. So that's that's the way we're going to do it. They said it has a French press because then, you know, it's at the table and it's going to It's be at the right. table. There's a whole visual to it. Yeah, it's a nice service piece. Yeah, it's a good service. And you could set down like a, a little card that says, hey, this is from, this is the farm or this is the farm. We might have to get these mugs in. And a little description. You know, we could do that for you. We could put like a small little description of the coffee on the back with the face of a farmer, and that's that. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait for all the stuff to come in. <laughs> oh, I, that's so my the, favorite part of doing that. So the the equipment that we find in restaurants typically is that old diner brew. And I'll be honest, I don't think we would have made come to that decision had we not visited and gone through the whole experience like you were just yeah, saying. Oh, because you became educated on no, it. exactly. Where we like, were you know, blackluster. We totally. Um, what? And we can start carrying decaf now, which we never did, which I thought was a myth or like some kind of fake coffee. But as I was explained to us last as week, as I was explained, yeah, that's actually kind you of a shouldn't cool feel bad to make decaf. Yeah. Coffee. yeah, you shouldn't feel bad if you want to drink decaf. Apparently, so I can't even read. How do they make decaf? So we use uh, water process coffees. So caffeine is water soluble. So basically, hot water removes the caffeine, strips it, runs through a bunch of carbon micron filters. Now, with this rinsing process, you're also flushing with hot water some of those flavor profiles. Those are caught in a different system. Then the caffeine is then removed. Anything of the flavored water profiles, aromatics, then gets flushed back into it, and they dry the coffee. Now, ethyl acetate and CO2, eh, I really don't want to use a poplar solvent being CO2, you know, or an ethyl acetate. 
So they tell pregnant women to drink decaf. You're, why? It, you're, they're consuming generally nine out of 10 coffees on the market are ethyl acetated decaf. It's a chemical, man. It stinks. It's toxic, nasty. So that's a different way to make decaf. We, so that's why we use water okay. process. There's a company in Canada, Swiss Water, and then Mountain Water Process in Nayarit, Mexico. Does it say this on the bags that you find yeah. on grocery store? It should say water process, either water processed or Swiss water process. So that's what you should be looking for if yeah. you are pregnant in the store and you're looking to have your cup of And you're looking to have coffee, yeah. Okay. Now, some women can't have it. I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, go ahead and all your pregnant women just go out and drink decaf because it's water processed. That, that would be your safer route. So just once again, it's educating people so they know. So then I guess a pregnant woman could go to a doctor and say, hey, can I drink decaf if it's water processed and I only drink this much, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Talk about things that you don't really know about until you yeah. have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, you're loaded with that info. What is the best way for somebody to produce a cup of coffee at home? Is it through the French press? No. For me, I do pour overs at home. I have, I'm doing it constantly. My wife and business partner Alicia makes them at home. We have our grinder at home. I make pour overs. I find it's one of the cleanest cups you can produce. And with that, your grinds on that pour over, what do you prefer? Do you have this thing very coarse or? No, it's actually on the slightly finer side. So basically I'm using, for a 500 mil is usually what I make in the morning, a 500 milliliter pot. I'm using 27 grams ground, semi-fine, not too fine about a 20-second bloom, which is getting all the coffee wet and allowing the CO2 to kind of bubble up and come off it. And then I'll do a couple passes circular, about two passes after that, filling the, filling the filter up to the top, letting it go down halfway, refilling it, and letting it go down fully. Is there an appropriate method to how much water needs to hit XX amount of coffee? to produce the correct pot or the best depending on pot. what you're brewing absolutely absolutely so i use end product i'm looking at end liquid product as a as a final number not beginning so i'm kind of tearing everything out to the end so i'm looking at for 27 grams it's roughly 16 ounces on, I think, 500 milliliters is roughly about 16 ounces. And I'm looking at about three minutes, three minutes, 15 seconds. As far as how much water is going through there at that mm -hmm. point? Or that and final, you have to measure final, 16 to I that just need minutes. the pour. And as it fills up, I kind of know where I need to stop as far as the coffee ground. I brew the same every yeah. day so i know when i i need to stop on that second pour that's going to pass through and give me that final product if i screw up i may throw just a tad bit of water in there just to top it off 
but that's that's me at home. I don't suggest that for other people doing it. This is my way, how I do it at home, and how I pull shots for myself. Very different than the training programs that we have at Coffee Labs. So and make sure you write all that down in case he asks you for a cup of coffee. <laughs> so I, I, I just I just did jot this note down. <laughs> yeah, but you I mean you can come by any day, Jefferson. Jefferson's gone to people's homes and done private <laughs> private lessons with people. That's awesome. Yeah, like he's great, and you can come in anytime if you just want to know how to do make a good pour over at home. Yeah, come I'm to the shop, to man. Yeah. Spend twenty minutes. What about the field addition? Good. I was just gonna say field trip. Yeah, another one. Oh I'll yeah, field it. trip, field trip. Um, what about the addition of like milk or cream? So yeah, it sounded like maybe that was a no. <laughs> <laughs> My first cup. Is it straight black? No. Oh no, oh, man! It's a there's half and half and a demi tasse of raw sugar. For me, my first cup. It's comfort. It's not about being a purist. Like, I'm not going to... Hey. And I've been... I've been scowled and looked at. And, you know, hellfire's been writ, rung down on me from other coffee people. Honestly, it's not your palate. It's my palate. There's something that... With anything you add milk or sugar to, there's a certain flavor profile it's going to bring out. And generally will enhance a flavor based on the fat content, the sugars in the milk, blah, blah. It's comforty. I like it. I enjoy it. Now when I go back to the shop, it'll be a full, you know, the rest of the cups will be black. You know, at night, I'll do, believe it or not, I'll do three quarters decaf and a shot of espresso in there. And then a little cream and a little sugar. But since at night, even though I do have a monstrous sweet tooth, that will kind of hold me over because it's like kind of desserty for me, warm and comforty. So yes, I'm a purist, and I I would just love to have straight up espresso bar. Screw you on the coffee, drip coffee. You come get espresso and you leave. Couple bar stools. That's it. That's where the hardcore purist comes in. But then. You got to realize it's. This is a drink that brings comfort and warmth to you when you drink it. There's a. I guess like a. I don't know, a habitual, kind of presence about having that. You're always used to having that coffee, and it's when you have it, you feel better. I I use coffee not as a caffeine stimulant by any means, but to put pants on in the morning and get out of bed. It's like my ritual. That's My wife I and do. I don't talk in the morning. Until you have your cup. 100%. Love it. See, it's not weird. Someone told me I was weird one time because I was like, I have to go get coffee. They go, why can't you just lounge around? I go, no, no, no. It forces me to get out of the house if I don't make it home. It forces me into the shower. I mean, just kind of getting up and doing the day. Yeah. yeah. Mine's on road trips. Every time we have to drive somewhere, we just stop and get a cup of coffee. And Nicole will be like, we don't have time. Like, We're getting <laughs> coffee. I can't. I can't. You want me to drive? Coffee. Yeah, have, and have there's times where I've walked out on the road and been like, bought espresso and got a coffee at places, and I'll never go back and say anything. Just leave it. We're, we're done here. <laughs> and sometimes I do that just to see what other coffee people in the area are doing. What we do is very different. Like, our coffee buying practices are very different than 
other coffee roasters in the area. I don't know anyone <laughs> on this side of the county within us. Uh, there's a larger, they do specialty and commercial in Port Chester. But out of everyone that I know within the industry and community around here, there's not anyone that's spending more time on the ground or buying coffee the way we're buying it. They're just not. Everyone's doing good work. We just took it a different route. A, a different level almost. It sounds yeah. Like too. Like, it's, we pride ourselves on our coffee, our relationships, and the sustainability that we kind of focus on with all of that. So, Mike, tell them, tell them where to find you and come check the place out, too. Oh, yo, hit us up in Terrytown, uh, 7 Main Street. We're right next to the Music Hall. Um, we're open seven days a week. You can go to coffeelabs.com. Instagram action? Instagram, at coffeelabs1 underscore. Boom. Mike, Sweet. Thanks, thanks for, for coming. coming. Thank you, guys, us. man. That was freaking awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot more we could talk about coffee. Yeah, it sounds like, like it. insane. I'm definitely going to come check you guys out. This is awesome.